0: Welcome to Most Popular, I'm Adrienne Trier-Bienick. Today's topic is two massive areas that folks in a lot of academic disciplines have dedicated years of study to, and I'm going to try and explain it all in 30 minutes. Um, I'm talking about the American prison system and the representation of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people in media, and I know, they're huge topics. And I also know that today will not be the only day that I address both of these areas. In fact, I really hope that this begins a multi-episode block that focuses on inequality and prison systems. But alas, here we are. Um, Today's inspiration came from two areas. One, from watching several seasons of Orange is the New Black on Netflix and co-editing a book on the show in 2016. And two, from my guest herself, Uh, We're going to draw from her research as a feminist criminologist and tie it in with the way LGBT folks are represented on Orange is the New Black. The show over the years has received acclaim as well as critique from all corners of the media world. We talk about this and how shows like Orange is the New Black attempt to represent what it means to be queer and in prison. We also talk about the ways the show has elevated stories about women of color, which is something I am always interested in. As I've mentioned before, stories about women's lives in our media are often either incredibly watered down or focus mainly on the experiences of white young women Generally, as they fall in love, and if you're not familiar, there is a really popular method of gauging women's represent women's representation in media. It's called the Bechdel test. Uh, You apply three standards to a show or a movie, etc., and see if it passes the test. So, one, it has to have at least two women in it. Two, they have to talk to each other. And three, they have to talk to each other about something besides a man. And I think you will be shocked at the amount of media you consume that does not pass the test. And as an avid Sex and the City fan, I certainly was taken aback when I realized how little their conversations focused on something other than a dude. My guest is my friend, Dr. Carrie Bust. Carrie is the, is an assistant professor of criminal justice at Grand Valley State University, where I also received a bachelor's in two thousand and two. But we didn't meet there; we met in graduate school many years later. But go Lakers! Um, Carrie's current research focuses on LGBTQ plus issues, and she's published the award-winning book Queer Criminology in late 2015, um, which she co-authored with Dr. Emily Lenning. She has published in Critical Criminology, an international journal, the Journal of Culture, Health, and Sexuality, and the Journal of Crime and Justice. And Carrie has several published book chapters on topics ranging from media and culture's influence on white collar crime to the social construction of gender, as well as LGBTQ plus experiences within the criminal legal justice system, such as transgender issues in prison and transgender victims and offenders. In addition to being awarded the 2016 Book Award from the Division on Critical Criminology, she also received the 2015 New Scholar Award from the American Society of Criminology's Division on women in crime. So I have links to Carrie's work on the website, mostpopularpod.com, and I'm very pleased to bring you our conversation. Here is my talk with Dr. Carrie Bust. Hi Carrie, welcome to Most Popular.
1: Hi Adrian, thanks for having me today.
0: Um, so let's start with just some basic terms, because I know we're going to be talking about these these words a lot as we discuss things, and I want people to be clear on what they mean. So could you talk about what queer means and how it fits with criminology and how it's applied?
1: Sure. Uh, queer in the past, um, most people would recognize that or, or did recognize it as an insult, uh, a, a very negative thing mm-hmm. smear the queer things like that that we've heard of in the past but around the 80s and 90s or, which is around the same time that queer theory was really developing here in the U.S. especially the word queer was was reclaimed as this kind of symbol of empowerment when we apply it within criminology it can take on several different meanings we use it as, uh, for instance, we use it as an all-encompassing word to include anyone who might identify within the LGBTQ plus population. We, uh, we do that for inclusion purposes. Now, that's not always going to, to fit everyone, right? Every individual is different, but that's the, the goal when we apply it. Um, we also use it to kind of highlight how the, uh, the discipline of queer criminology is outside of the norm of what might be referred to as mainstream criminology. So, um, and that's kind of where we're at within queer cri- criminology as a discipline today. Um, it would certainly fall under what we refer to as critical criminology uh, and under Critical criminology. You have different types of of research, such as feminist criminology, and here we have queer criminology, and that's that's kind of our intention right now as far as using the word queer.
0: What does what makes criminology distinct from something like criminal justice or law enforcement, or and I know there's overlap too, um, but what's sure. the difference?
1: I always say that criminology is, is more of a, a theoretical approach, right, At asking the questions of why someone commits crime or mm-hmm. um, why certain populations are, are more likely to be victimized or more likely to be uh, the target of uh, select enforcement or something of that nature. So it's more of a, a, a theoretical uh, take and when we look at criminal justice or what I often refer to as the criminal legal system, mm-hmm. we're looking at the uh, practical application, right? So it's it's the police officers, it's the court system, it's uh, corrections, the prison system, things like that.
0: Because it's problematic. The term criminal justice can be problematic in its in its own self, right? I, I, the, absolutely the justice part of it. Am I right?
1: Oh uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely, especially when we look at it from you know an intersectional lens, right? What justice to um a middle-class white male is going to be vastly different um to a uh, a, a a young black male living in poverty, let's say, right? So yeah. there there the ideas of justice are very different. And how the quote-unquote justice system treats individuals is very different as well, even though, you know, we kind of have always been told, you know, justice is blind, the idea of Lady Justice with the blindfold on. We know that, practically
0: speaking, that is certainly not the case. So you and I, um, maybe we should admit this on a podcast, but you and I are Real Housewives watch viewers. Um, Yes, yes. (laughs) <laughs> and New York City all the way. Um, and <laughs> the other day I read about um, one of the women who I think was on the OC Housewives, Alexis. Uh, I think she was OC. And her daughter, who is like 26 now, was recently um, arrested. And she was arrested for, I think, drugs and a few other things. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's Lynn, Lynn daughter. Yes, Lynn's yeah. daughter. And, but her... Yeah. Her arrest record was extensive. It was like Mm -hmm. every year for like the past, I don't know, five or six years, she's had something come up. Clearly, she's got an issue with drug addiction, but um, Mm -hmm. she's been arrested multiple times for these things. And I did not see, I didn't see time served. I didn't see like anything that indicated that she had done anything other than be arrested, posted bail. She had like a misdemeanor, I think, or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what I think of when you think when you say criminal justice, that's that's probably the most recent example and most pop culture example I can conjure up in my brain that, you know, you have this child of these people who have some wealth and prestige and power and privilege. And sure. And she's I not mean, a child. I'm just she's looking at but, the, but, yeah. the
1: wider lens as far as celebrity goes. Yeah. Right? I mean, we've seen so many different celebrities in and out of the court system. With you know a slap on the wrist, a fine, community service, and certainly that's not the reality for most people yeah. in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, celebrity, I think, is its own its own monster when we're talking oh, yeah. about criminal justice. Um. So, how? Let's talk a little bit about your background and how you got into into studying this, and then maybe talk a little bit about your book, how you got to that point. So, what what got sure. you going? Um in queer criminology
1: specifically, um, I attend a, a conference every year called the American Society of Criminology, and I met a, uh, a researcher there named Amy Woda, who um, we just ended up having a, a conversation randomly, and she was talking about some of the research that she did and told me about this burgeoning new field uh, within criminology called queer criminology. And I started to to realize that a lot of the previous research that I had done, primarily on the lived experiences of female police officers, would um, certainly relate to or, or be considered part of this idea of queer criminology. And um, about a year or so later, uh, another colleague from who attends the conference, approached me and, and my friend Emily Lenning, co-author Emily Lenning, and asked us if we would be interested in exploring a book on the topic. So we said yes, you know, um, and the, the rest is kind of history. Most of the research that I've been doing since then focuses primarily on queer criminology.
0: So you've been doing, you did some things on policing, right? That was one of your right. areas, yeah. Um, can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about what that was? Yes, I, uh, I
1: did some research on uh, uh, the, the lived experiences of female police officers, and I did interviews with them and uh, did some ride-alongs as well. But the interviews is really where kind of the meat of the information came from. And uh, unbeknownst to me at the time going into these interviews, many of the women identified as lesbians. So a lot of their experiences on the job related to their sexual identity. And I just found it fascinating how, how their experiences differed from women who identified as, as, as straight on the mm-hmm. job. And um, some of my findings were a bit different than previous research. A lot of the previous research would indicate that women who identify as lesbian who are, are police officers, usually find acceptance don't have a lot of problems but the the women who i interviewed most of them had experienced some type of, of negativity related specifically to their sexuality and uh from there i i ended up interviewing uh criminal legal professionals so uh, men and women uh, both uh Um, Police officers, uh, corrections officers, I even had some um, attorneys and and judges in that mix as well, interviewing them about their experiences being uh, LGBTQ on the job. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And again, uh, a lot of negative experiences, especially from some of the transgender officers who
0: I interviewed. What kinds of experiences did they tell you about?
1: One that really stands out to me is um, a participant who was in California at the time who was transitioning from male to female talked about how when she identified as male, she was part of that, quote-unquote, brotherhood of policing. Mm. Most of her best friends were officers, had each other's backs, so on and so forth. And as soon as she began her transition, she lost all of those friends. And she was really uh, shunned within the department. Yeah, She mentioned um, going home one night and she had to go into a parking garage to 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 get her car to go home, and mm-hmm. one of the police officers, male police officers, who used to be one of her close friends, assaulted her. Wow! And they got into kind of a a, a pushing match, and and um uh because of just because of the the transgender identity. So mm-hmm. a lot of horror stories like that. In fact, what's interesting is that. A lot of the, the officers, both police officers and corrections officers who, who transitioned, and I believe all of them were transitioning from male to female, they told me that they had uh, better experiences with the public and with the incarcerated men that they were, they were um, uh, supervising in the prison than they did with their own coworkers.
0: Wow. Yeah. I think this is a good transition to talk about Orange is the New Black because, you know, we have the character of Sophia who transitioned, who was a firefighter. Mm -hmm. She was a firefighter, right? Yeah, she was a firefighter. Yes, yes. Um, And I think that some of the same themes that they try, I mean, it's a show. We should probably say before Mm -hmm. we start talking about it, we realize that it's a show it can't incorporate everything that we would like it to as much as like you and I would like to write it or right. <laughs> provide advice. Um, but I, I think that was what they were trying to present with her character was this rejection because she transitioned and this kind of, how dare you, um, how dare you betray what you said as the brotherhood to become a woman, right. which is so steeped in so much. I mean, we could unpack it, but just the gender role aspect of it, that suddenly you're not as great because now you're a woman or um, a transgender mm-hmm. woman at that.
1: Um, and that wh- speaks, you know, historically to some of the major issues, especially in policing, because it's this paramilitary organization. It's it's wrapped, couched within masculinity, right? The research continues to show us that mat- mat- those who, who have masculine traits, portray masculine traits in policing, are valued while anyone with feminine traits are actually devalued, not even, not even ignored, but devalued on the job. And uh, that certainly is going to speak volumes to anyone who's identifying outside of their... their the. the the gender role stereotype
0: is that exponentially greater. Like, if you're female and you act more feminine, or if you're male and act more feminine, is it is it not connected so much to gender as it is an attitude about this sort of um, super masculine nature? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think it does. And, and like I said, my my initial research with with Uh, women police officers differed from a lot of the research that's out there. Hmm. If you're a gay man and you're out on the job, your experiences, I I would argue, are going to be far more negative than a lesbian woman Mm -hmm. out on the job, especially, especially if we're talking about particular characteristics, right? So if, if you're a super feminine male, a born male, right, working the job of a police officer, I think it's, it's a very hard-fought battle for acceptance. And
0: I'm sorry, what was that other part of the question? No, no, you answered it. You answered it. Okay. Um, okay. I think it's also then important to think about Orange is the New Black from your, because, you know, you're a criminologist. How, how is... Does that show? What impact do you think that show has on um, prison life, on gender representation? Um, if you were to look at it through your your lens, how do you see it? There's so much going on in Orange Is the New Black, especially I'd say the first
1: four seasons, mm-hmm. right? So it's ending now after seven. Um, I think that five really. Jump the shark. Uh, I think season five was the jump the shark season for Orange (laughs) is the New Black. But um, years ago, um, the uh, institution I was working for down in North Carolina brought Piper Kerman, the author of the book, um, who, of course, Piper Chapman uh, on Orange is the New Black is is based on. And she did a, a talk and I had the opportunity to meet her. And she was she was mentioning how that first season of Orange is the New Black was very much, very much so mirrored her experiences. Mm -hmm. The one thing I remember her saying is that in in maybe the first episode where there's four women in um, a cell, kind of a bunk area, she was like, that was exactly how it was. That's what it looked like. It was exactly like that. And. Speaking to the character of Sophia Bursett, we, we see kind of in that first season, and this is one of the things that, that the show, especially that character, received a lot of crit- criticism for. That idea that Sophia Bursett was a one-dimensional character,
0: mm-hmm. that
1: everything was about sexual identity or gender identity. And in that first season, what do we see of Sophia Bursett? We see mostly her working in the salon, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We don't really know too much about her backstory. I don't think it was until season two, maybe, that we got some backstory on Sophia. Um, maybe it found was at out. the end of season one?
0: Yeah, in season one, we found out that she had stolen credit cards, and they showed right. that what flashback is- scene. Yeah. Which I,
1: I remember when watching that, I was like, oh, well, that makes sense. Especially if you look at it from uh, kind of a dual perspective through a feminist criminology lens that, you know, developed in order to focus on gender, because before feminist criminology developed and began in the 70s, nobody cared what women were doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was on what was all the research was focused on men and boys. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the offending of women, typically it's nonviolent, right? So fraud, things of that nature totally makes sense. So couple that with the cost of transitioning And it it was like, it was perfect. how I thought how they put that together. Yeah. Um, And later in the, in the, in the show, Bursette even comments about how much um, money and time and everything that she had to do to transition and that she wasn't going back. I think it was when they were um, withholding her medication. I think that's when she made a comment like that yeah but um so we see in seasons three and four we start to see her her journey unpacked in more detail and the experiences that she had in prison were were quite similar to to the research as far as the experiences of transgender uh, men and women who are incarcerated so I was happy uh, to see that um, and you know it helps that Laverne Cox is such an activist i mean she could right she could teach a master class in mm-hmm. uh in not only transgender rights but history and just uh, she could be a great sociology professor i think
0: that conversation between her and bell hooks um, yes. I yeah. uh, forget where it was. I, it may have even been the famous conversation where Bell Hooks said Beyonce was not great for women, and Liver and Cox yeah, reacted that to it. Was a sad day for me. <laughs> it was a really sad <laughs> day for me too. <laughs> um, yeah, that. I'm always curious whenever I watch these shows, and I, I think I, I mentioned this one. We were texting about Captain Marvel, but um, I'm always curious how much people who write these shows have done their homework on mm-hmm. um, the different aspects because I'm convinced the people who wrote Captain Marvel at least cracked a second wave feminist some fact second wave feminism book and learned some basic theory and applied it to that movie because you can just see it throughout the whole thing and maybe it's because I look for that and everything that I watch anyway like I'm always kind of Mm -hmm. it's like it's like a switch you can't turn off in your brain once you realize what inequality looks like and how it's translated into our media you really can't not see it um yeah but with Orange is the New Black I'm I'm very curious how much study went into forming these characters and um how much of the how much these people read on things like LGBT experiences in the prison system. I, I'm guessing there was some just based off of watching the show. I don't think they went in blind, yeah. you know? Yeah, I'd I have to agree.
1: I mean, and speaking to to being so mindful of things that we, we watch and being able to pick out theory and things like that, I always say, you know, I'm a sociologist. I really haven't enjoyed anything in years because <laughs> it's like, oh, well, that's radical feminism right there. I can't believe <laughs> that, you know? So um I would have to say again, especially when we're talking about seasons three and four of of Orange is the New Black, they had <clears throat> excuse me, they had to do their research, not only about transgender inmate issues, but the switch to the prison, Litchfield becoming privately owned. Mm-hmm. And that was they really spoke to real life issues with for-profit prisons, which led to, of course, the riot in season five, where again, I think it jumped the shark, but it's still, it's still speaking to those, those real life issues. Um, Again, I, I would say, especially in season three, the character of Sophia Bursette becomes much more complex, than the previous two seasons and the the one thing that always stood out to me watching this was how they removed her from general population and put her in segre <clears throat> excuse me i'm sorry in segregation yeah um under the guise of her own protection which yeah. is absolutely against
0: mm-hmm.
1: our, our standards
0: mm-hmm that was the season when they brought in Whisper Panties, and um, I think that season got a little more critique than normal because Piper started a relationship with um, uh, the the woman. I'm forgetting her name, but she's very heavily tattooed. I think she's Australian. Yes. Um, and um, Rose. Yes. Uh, uh, something Rose. I think. Am- not Amber Rose. That's the wrong one. Um, but no, yeah, that's a, that's someone else. I'll think about it. Put it on the website after. We'll all be fine. Um, She, that's when people started to zero in and say, you know, are you doing sex scenes with two women on this show to move the story forward to, you know, tell these Mm people's stories? Or are you now doing it because it's what you think people are tuning in to see is a whole bunch of naked women running around? And I thought that was interesting because there was a definite switch when those two characters started having some sort of relationship. Right, absolutely, and I think that I would have to agree
1: that it's it, it was really, in my opinion, in part to to get the viewership,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: especially with that particular actress whose name neither one of us can remember right now, <laughs> uh, because she has that she you know was a supermodel, quote unquote supermodel before coming to the show, yep, and uh, had a lot of attention in that way certainly. A kind of unconventional standards as far as supermodels go right right but um definitely um quite different from a lot of the the women on the show mostly the supporting cast who really do i think represent what and i hate to say this but real women look like right it's right? not
0: to say that I think yeah. you get my dress, but there's no know, one so, way so, to say real woman We're we're, but <laughs> up until this point, right. the presentation has been thin, white, straight women. Yes,
1: yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. So we see, we see those experiences from that intersectional lens, right? The cast is, is perhaps the most diverse cast on, for any show. Yeah. Um, whether it be network or streaming. I mean, I say that without having done any initial research on that, but just from the top of my head, I can't think of a more diverse cast.
0: Yeah. As two people who consume a lot of television, we're fairly qualified to answer (laughs) what a diverse (laughs) cast looks. Um, it was Ruby Rose and the character was Stella. Ruby Rose. There we go. Ruby Rose. Yes. Okay. Um.
1: Yeah, so so absolutely, but the 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 one thing that I think we should draw attention to especially from a criminologist's point of view or even anyone who's interested in in the prison system in any way, what 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 they really did right, what they 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 did very well was the idea of what we refer to in the research as a pseudo family.
0: Mm.
1: And the pseudo-family, we see this almost exclusively in women's prisons. And oftentimes you'll have a, a group of women who take on family roles, right? You might have a mother figure, a father figure, siblings, so on and so forth. And when we look at Red, Red's character, and mm-hmm. Nikki and, and her quote unquote family mm-hmm. that really is a great great representation of what how we would define a pseudo family if I was if I was teaching this right I would show Orange as the New Black or have them read about it and say you know is a pseudo family represented and that would be the answer I was looking for so there really are some things that are very accurate and true to life in the show
0: As you're saying that, I was thinking about, um, I I think it's season five was the riot that where we think it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the the, one article I read about it said that, you know, they the stereotype is that a women's prison is nothing but hair braiding and, you know, singing (laughs) and craft circles and. Um, and so they wanted to play off that a little bit, which is why we got the scenes of like them starting a, like a mini Starbucks in the prison and, Mm -hmm. and having their, um, their nice time together during this riot. And then they wanted to flip that on its head, which is why it ended as badly as it ended in the last like Mm -hmm. four episodes. Um, and when you say pseudo family, I was thinking, you know, that's what they were trying to show was that there is this this family atmosphere, but how quickly things can change. I was also thinking of um, the relationship between Boo and, Big Boo and um, mm-hmm. Pensatuck, Pensatucky? Uh, Pens- yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Do you know who I'm talking about? Um, yep, yep, the, yep. The two of them made a nice little sisterhood for quite some time. And that yeah. unlikely relationship was it was fun to watch, and I think because of what you're saying that that you had a you kind of got two people that were unlikely to hang out with each other, but once they did, it worked, and you had this kind of nice sisterly relationship between them, with her teaching her how to brush her teeth, and you know, right, <laughs> right, yeah,
1: absolutely, absolutely, and that that you do make a good point with regards to to, to season five. It was just. there were definitely some nuances there that were were positive right but you know the whole the whole thing was just so so far-fetched for me in comparison to the previous seasons because you know even though it's a tv show as you mentioned they did get a lot right they they did and then you know it was just so far-fetched in season five it 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 lost me for a bit
0: yeah um well, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground. I want to wrap it up, but I want to wrap it up with the question that I'm asking everyone, which is, uh, Carrie Beast, who do you think or what do you think deserves to be voted most popular?
1: Okay, so this is a tough question for me, as as you know. I'm sure that if, if the tables were turned and I asked you this question, it would be very difficult for you to answer as well, because we are pop culture junkies, right? <laughs> Yeah, but and this this really, this has nothing to do with criminology or the criminal legal system, um, even though I could probably figure out a way to tie it to that. But I just have to say that I am so digging the reboot of Nine o- Beverly Hills 90210. <laughs> I knew you. I, <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't know. If any of your listeners might be watching it or if they grew up uh, on it, I'll I'll tell you, if you grew up watching Beverly Hills 90210, you will love this reboot. So they've only had two episodes so far at the time that we're we're having this conversation. And I have just watched both of them with a smile glued on my face (laughs) the entire time. I love it. I think that the way they're approaching it is brilliant and funny and nostalgic. And, you know, rest in peace, Luke Perry. It will never be the same without him, but they did a really good job of of addressing that issue in the first episode. So I really, really have to say that for me is is what's most popular right now.
0: Years ago, I had asked you if I want to watch 90210, should I start at the beginning? And you said, yes, or I can come to your house and reenact it for you. (laughs) So I'm not surprised (laughs) that that's (laughs) that's what you chose.
1: Well, listen, that offer still stands. (laughs) Uh, I'll I'll be happy to reenact all of the episodes of 90210 for you. (laughs) Okay, Um,
0: uh, Anytime. Um, Carrie, thank you so much. Thank you for doing this and, Thank you for being my friend, and I'm just so happy I know you.
1: I'm so happy I know you. I think this is a great idea, and um, uh, feel free to, to I think you're going to share like contact information and stuff. If, if not, feel free to do that. Oh,: If any of your listeners have questions, comments,: I will link: I will, link to, to I will link
0: to your Grand Valley page on my website. It'll be a whole thing. Don't worry. All right. Um, thanks, Carrie. Thank you Adrian I'll talk to you soon Once again, I'd like to say thank you to my guest, Dr. Carrie Bust. If you want to find out more or check out the episode notes, you can visit the website at mostpopularpod.com. I'm also on Instagram at mostpopularthepod, Twitter at mostpopularpod, and Facebook at mostpopular. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. And I'll see you next time.